I believe that God calls you and I into greatness, just as he has called Joseph. Despite what his surrounding environment tells him, God calls you into greatness, just as he has called Joseph, despite what his or our surrounding environment tells us. And what is the narrative that you tell yourself? I'm sure Joseph had plenty of times and reasons to tell himself that he doesn't have a right to exist, that he never asked to be born, that he was worthless, he should never trust anyone again or ever take risks again. And yet he doesn't do that. Our families, our histories, our traumatic events, and our own lives often hand us negative messages or scripts that we highlight in our minds and play over and over again in our heads. Hey, welcome to Night Church, the Friday evening service of Praxis, the young adult ministry of the Loma Linda University Church. You're going to be hearing some great sermons, testimonies on this podcast that are going to encourage and deepen your faith. We are so excited that you're here, and I hope you enjoy this sermon, and so much so that you share it with someone that you love. Welcome. Praxis family, and welcome again to Friday Night Church. It's so good to see each and every one of you here. Um, We are going through a series right now with the elders, and so the last two weeks, it has been Matt Daly and Derek Glatz, and this week it is my turn, and I am so excited to share the story of Joseph with you tonight. Yes, we're really pumped for this. We're going to go a little deep, so I don't know how excited you're going to be at the very end, but we'll see. I know there's a lot of new faces here as well. Um, My name is Kelly, as I've said before, and I'm one of the pastoral interns here. And we just want to give a big shout out and welcome to the people who are maybe first timers here. Um, Is anyone here a first timer? Just kind of slip your hand up and put it back down. There's a couple of people back there I see. Welcome, welcome. Um, we're just so glad that you're here. And I know that school is starting um, within the next week. Actually, it's starting on Monday for a lot of people. Um, and so I would love to get connected with you. Pastor Phil would also love to get connected with you. He is currently on paternity leave for the next week or so, and they're about to welcome their third child. Um, But if you ever see any of us on campus or maybe on the streets of Loma Linda or at Trader Joe's, like, come and say hi. We would love to get to know you. Um, And on Monday, as I said, we're having a huge welcome back bash. And so we're inviting all students to come. We have, and even if you don't want to come and say hi to me and Phil, um, it's okay. I won't take offense to it. We have awesome prizes that the University Church is giving away. We have Apple Watches, Eno Hammocks, Air Fryers. Nutribullets, AirPods, Beat headphones. There's like a hundred prizes that we're giving away. And so in order to win, all you have to do is a minute, minute to win it game where you bounce a ball into a cup. So if you're a Loma Linda University student, please come. It's on the Founders Lawn out here on Monday at 5 o'clock p.m. But that being said, let's start with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here to church on a beautiful Friday evening. Lord, you know what we've been going through this past week, whether it's nerves of starting school or finding a place to live, maybe it's meeting new roommates, or maybe it's tension within a new job or relationship. 
Maybe it's an illness in the family, Lord. I'm not sure what everyone else is going through, but God, I know that you know. And that wherever we are in our lives, we pray that you bring us peace and that you anchor us with your hope. I pray that tonight as we gather here, that you quiet the storms in our minds and allow us to open our hearts and ears to this message. I pray that you speak through me, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. So this past weekend, I celebrated my 32nd birthday, which, yes, very exciting, right? And a lot of you guys are probably kind of shook, like, are you actually not 18? Yes, I promise. I am 32. And if you have not been up to Lake Arrowhead, it is absolutely beautiful. And that is where a lot of my friends and I went this weekend. And it was beautiful. We went hiking. We hung out by the lake. We checked out this cute little village. And it was just super fun. And it got the whole weekend off, which is very rare as a pastor. And I just soaked in every moment of it. I remember just looking out across the dinner table and seeing the friends, my friends' faces. And one of my best friends flew from, from um, Washington. And it was just so nice to be there in a place where you're like, this is my safe place. This is, these are my people. And it was probably like kind of like a women's retreat, but like in the best way possible. And we really got to know each other. It was super fun. And you know, it's kind of crazy because I'm still embracing the fact that I'm 32. And um, I actually got mistaken for an 18-year-old last week, which was honestly a huge honor, but also kind of like hilarious and flattering. And it's also kind of terrifying because once you sit for more than like 30 minutes, your back starts to hurt and you're like, I'm not 18 anymore. <laughs> and um, you know, it's also kind of crazy. I went up to the high schoolers like a few weeks ago to preach for them. And I realized that some of the kids who are going into high school were born the year that I graduated high school, which is also crazy. It's a little unsettling. Um, and also, I started watching Gilmore Girls. Has anyone watched Gilmore Girls? Yes. It's a classic. It's so good. And I've never seen it in my life. Like, I was probably watching cartoons in high school while everyone was watching Gilmore Girls. But I started watching it, and the main character is Lorelai Gilmore. And what's crazy is that she's 32. And she has a 16-year-old. And I was like, oh, I could have a 16-year-old right now. That's so creepy. <laughs> but you know, I look like this because of genetics, right? Like, if you look at my parents, you'd be like, yes, those are your parents, because they both look like they're trying to outlive the sun, because Asians, like, don't raisin. And so when you see Asians, you're, like, always confused. You're like, are you actually 20 or, like, 40? We, we don't really know. But I say this because so many things in our family that we do or that we say or that we look like come from a family of origin. And whether it's that's your behavioral patterns or thought process, or maybe it really is your genetics, like my family and I. But how many others of us recognize that many of our appearances, our habits, our thought processes, our actions, our reactions, how we deal with conflict is actually deeply rooted with our family of origin? And how many of us underestimate the deep, unconscious imprint that our families of origin leave on us? And maybe many of us can actually think of certain family members or people who have raised us throughout our childhood that have imprinted certain ways or behaviors of thinking on us. So my mom is very clean. In fact, she's probably borderline, if not completely a germaphobe. And so 
When I unfortunately went out into the real world, I didn't know that it wasn't normal to wash your dishes with soap and water, and then you shouldn't put it in the dishwasher because it's already clean. But I would wash my dishes with soap and water and then put it into the dishwasher and then have them be washed a second time. And I just think it's so funny because I'm from Seattle, and that is probably like the biggest waste of water, you know? Like it's the complete opposite of being environmentally friendly. So instead, I like composting and recycling. You know, it's kind of like when you eat a salad with a side of fries, you're like, this will eventually all add up. <laughs> but my friends and my roommates at the time, when I moved out of the house, probably thought I was kind of crazy. And they were probably like, um, that's weird. Like, why do you do this thing? And there's obviously a lot of deeper trains of thought that dictate our behavioral patterns and things such as racism, which is often taught from a young age, and in turn become hardwired into our brains and our DNA, and we pass this on as well. Sometimes it's hard for us to even dissociate these behavioral patterns from our identities until maybe an intervention of God or maybe biblical discipleship comes along. But if we do not recognize this and if we do not dissociate, we naturally bring these expectations and behaviors into our closest relationships as adults. So how do we break these generational cycles of behavioral patterns, traumas, and sin? Tonight, we're going to be talking about a story in the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. And the book of Genesis has a lot of themes woven into it. One of the themes we see is how blessings or sins are passed on from generation to generation. You see that starting with Abraham, going on to his son Isaac, going on to his son Jacob, and you see the pattern continue. But another main thing that we see that is very obvious is the show of favoritism in the family. So again, we start with Abraham, who was the first Hebrew patriarch in the, in the Bible, and he has two sons. He has Ishmael and Isaac. And can you guys remember who his favorite was? Isaac, that's right. He almost killed Isaac, which is also a crazy story. <laughs> Isaac then has two sons, and he has Jacob and Esau. Does anyone know who his favorite was? Esau, that's right. He was a really hairy one, right? And he was like super hangry and he like walks and he's like, I just want soup. And so then his brother's like, here you go, give me your family blessing. And he just like gives it to him. So just remember, if you're ever hangry, don't make big life decisions. So Jacob is the one who carries on the family blessing and he has 12 sons. And guess what? He has a favorite as well. And that's Joseph. And that's where we land tonight. Joseph is the book, the guy in the book of Genesis that has this really beautiful multicolored coat that his father gifts to him, and his brothers are so incredibly jealous and hated him for it. I imagine this kind of similar to me and my siblings. I have an older brother and a little sister, yay middle children, um, we're the best. So um, I imagine if this was my little sister getting a Christmas present, and she opens it, and she's like, sweet, I got like a Louis Vuitton, and I got Balenciaga sneakers. And then my brother and I open this gift, and it's like these threaded like hand-me-downs and like these thrift store clothes, which no, no shade on thrifting. I love thrifting. But you know, like that would not be fair, right? Seeing this blatant favoritism would definitely harbor negative feelings. And in the story of Joseph, it destroys the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. So we're going to be starting in Genesis 37. 
So I would recommend you guys trying to get there right now. Open up your Bibles on your phone or maybe you physically brought it. But Joseph's story starts here. And at the beginning of his story, Joseph is 17 years old and he's the youngest in his family. And he clearly has youngest child syndrome, poor guy, because he's flaunting his new and beautiful coat in front of his brothers. And not only that, but his father is clearly, clearly loving him the most. Joseph also has these amazing dreams that his family bows down to him, and that's really deeply offensive. But the story of Joseph is fascinating. I'm excited to dig into it with you guys. He's the golden boy in his family. He's the favorite child, and yet he was sold into slavery. He's betrayed by his brothers who wanted to kill him and sold him into slavery, and yet later he continues to love on them. But I don't know about you, I can't imagine these feelings of betrayal, you know, like, what would that feel like if your own family turned against you? How does he deal with these feelings of maybe unworthiness or the trauma that he's experienced? If his own blood-related brothers were not interested in protecting him or his dreams, how is he allowed to trust anyone else? And we see how these generational sins have led to favoritism, and Joseph is very aware that his father his grandfather and his great-grandfather having mistakes in all of this. Joseph is very aware of his family's past, which is more than just favoritism. There's lying, and there's other families that are cutting each other off in each generation. There's poor intimacy in each marriage of each generation. So we ask ourselves, how do we break generational traumas and cycles? So the first step, I believe, to breaking generational trauma is having self-awareness. Pete Scazzaro, the author of the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, says, family history lies within all of us, especially in those who want to bury it. The hardest thing to do is to go back, but sometimes we must do so in order to go forward. And it's not only having awareness in your own family's past and history, but it's awareness in your own self. Let's see what Joseph does in Genesis 37, 5 to 11. And I want you to pay special attention to how Joseph approaches people and how, how and where he gets his wisdom from. So verse 5, it says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream that he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers, which I think is so funny because I'm like, bro, can you not read the room here? Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told this, his father, as well as his brothers, we're like, what the heck? And his brother rebuked him. His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And his brothers was jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, fun fact in the Bible, when you see someone who has two of the same or consecutive dreams in a row, it means that it will come true. And Joseph knows this in this biblical context at this time. And so he knows that God has called him to do greater things. Remember that. 
Later in the same chapter, Joseph goes down to visit his brothers while they tend sheep, and they see him from a distance, and they plot to kill him. And I'm just going to go and like spark Nook's version in case anyone doesn't remember the story of Joseph and just remind you guys of what it is so we can go to the next point. But instead of killing him, the eldest brother, Reuben, is like, hey, we shouldn't kill him. Let's just throw him into this pit. And I'm like, thank God for older siblings. You know what I mean? Like, they really help us out. <laughs> and as the story goes, instead, the brothers see a caravan of merchants come by, and they're like, let's sell Joseph for money. Like, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that sounds like a great idea. So they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, which is the equivalent of three years of work as a shepherd. Eventually, Joseph is sold by a powerful Egyptian named Potiphar. He rises to the ranks. He becomes second command. He even says Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything. All he does is like worries about what he wants to eat, and Joseph does everything else. And I can't imagine what Joseph is feeling, right? Because he was recently a slave, and then he rises up to the second in command. And then something bad really happens. Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with Joseph. He refuses, so she pretends that he rapes her, which honestly makes the feminist movement look a little bad, but this is 1400 BC. And Joseph gets thrown into jail, and we find him in chapter 40, and he is interpreting some dreams. So let's turn to Genesis 40, verse 6 to 8, and I want you to pay attention, special attention, to how Joseph responds to the chief cupbearer and baker. Joseph's in jail. So when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him and his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there was no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Okay, so interesting, right? We see the first time that Joe talks to his brothers, he doesn't read the room well. And this time, Joe just looks around the room and he's like, just tell me your dreams. I'm going to be able to tell you. And as the story has it, Joseph, sure enough, is able to interpret their dreams. And in return, the cupbearer is like, thank you, man. I'm going to remember you. So when I get out of jail, I'll get you out of jail too. And I love this because he actually forgets to get him out of jail, which honestly I relate so well with because I feel like my mind is like Dory's mind. And I'm like, I forget what I even say mid-sentence sometimes. So everything is written out here so I don't forget. But as the story continues, we find jo Joseph continuously living in jail. He's in jail for two years. And then Pharaoh has a dream, right? We know about this. No one can interpret this dream. Pharaoh asks all the wise men, and eventually, like divine intervention, the cupbearer who forgot all of a sudden remembers and comes in clutch and remembers Joseph. So let's read what happens in Genesis 41, 14 to 16. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one could interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Whoa. Did you guys just see that shift change there? There's a new change in Joseph's response to Pharaoh's request to interpret his dream. It's no longer from his brothers of saying, I'm the greatest. It's no longer, hey, tell me this dream. Oh, yeah, I can tell you because I know everything. Instead, 
it's him saying, hey, if God wills, then he will give me this interpretation of the dream. We don't know what happened to Joseph in those two years of jail. It doesn't say in the Bible, but I imagine he could have been wrestling a lot with his identity. He just became a slave. He had a dream that God had given him that he would be powerful. He became a slave. Then he rose up to the ranks. Then he's back in prison. And he's suffering. I can only imagine he must be feeling unworthy or pitiful or broken. He must be wondering, God, didn't you give me this promise that I would be great one day? I didn't make this promise up. You did. Weren't you the one who gave me these dreams? And what happened to them? Are you even here? I can only imagine the mental gymnastics that he's doing for two years for this response to happen from saying, I can do this. I know everything to if God wills, then I can do this. I can only imagine the amount of faith he must have had in the prison and that spiritual growth information that occurred over those two years. You see that Joseph now has a lot of self-awareness and growth. And my question for you is, what does that look like for you? How can you break generational cycles and, and chains with self-awareness? The second step of breaking generational trauma and cycles is by changing your narrative. What is the narrative that you tell yourself? Let's go back into the story. So Joseph eventually interprets Pharaoh's dreams and tells him that God has shown Pharaoh what, is he about to, what he's about to do. There's going to be seven years of abundance and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh is super impressed and puts Joseph in charge of everything. In fact, he becomes second in command. He becomes second in command of an entire nation that once he was enslaved for and once he was imprisoned for. It makes me only imagine the narrative that Joseph is having in his head right now. In fact, he was just in jail a few moments ago for a false crime that he did not commit. And the next moment, he's in charge of an entire nation. We don't know exactly what's going on in his mind, but you kind of get a little bit of a hint for how he feels when his first children are born in Genesis 41. And he names his firstborn Manasseh. It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And his second son, Ephraim, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Despite all the suffering that Joseph went through, you see this resilient narrative that he has an identity and worthiness in God, and that is powerful. I believe that God calls you and I into greatness just as he has called Joseph, despite what his surrounding environment tells him. God calls you into greatness, just as he has called Joseph, despite what his or our surrounding environment tells us. And what is the narrative that you tell yourself? I'm sure Joseph had plenty of times and reasons to tell himself that he doesn't have a right to exist, that he never asked to be born, that he was worthless, he should never trust anyone again or ever take risks again. And yet he doesn't do that. Our families, our histories, our traumatic events, and our own lives often hand us negative messages or scripts that we highlight in our minds and play over and over again in our heads. Trauma therapy says that traumatic events are highlighted and bolded and underlined in our minds. And until we work through it and process it with professional help, then we continue to highlight it. 
and it sometimes covers us and blinds us and misleads us into thinking that that is our identity, when in actuality, it is not. Joseph recognized the calling that God had on his life since day one, despite his surroundings, despite the hate that his brother was showing to him, despite the fact that he was thrown into jail, despite everything else in his life, he chose to open the door to God's future by rewriting his narrative alongside with God. This is not to negate or minimize anyone's traumatic experiences, but in fact, it's asking you to face them, to work through the past in order to be present for your future. The reason many of us continue to lean into our traumas or into our family's history is the story that we tell ourselves. Maybe someone ignored you at school as a kid and that really made you feel badly. And maybe you thought, okay, now anyone who ignores me just hates me. And maybe some days someone just can't hear you or they accidentally ignore you and they don't realize it. But in response to that, you think they hate you. And maybe you start to think, I am the most hated person in this entire city, or I don't belong here, when in actuality, it was a one-time incident, or maybe a few incidences that led you to this, and you never addressed it with a safe person or a mentor or therapist. The narratives that we have for ourselves are powerful, and the experiences that continue to cement these stories and our head drive us to speak a certain narrative for ourselves. What we believe in is certainly what we actually end up reacting and acting as. And that is why I find it so fascinating the power of positive thinking is so powerful, which is seen in psychology today. But going back to Joseph, we see in the story of Joseph that the second step of breaking generational trauma and cycles is through changing your narrative. For the individual who maybe used to think that everyone hated them, perhaps reaching out to a therapist or a mentor or a close friend that they can talk and feel safe and affirm with can change their narrative through thoughtful coaching, through prayer and guiding them to see a different perspective. The third step of breaking generational trauma and cycle is by having connection. Let's pick back up in Genesis 42 and as Joseph's story has it, the entire world comes to Egypt to buy grain when the famine begins. And Joseph, of course, is in charge. His brothers learn that there's grain in Egypt, so they go down there, and Joseph immediately recognizes them. So we're going to go to Genesis 42, 7 to 17. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him, which I'm wondering, is it because like, he just like, got super like, built and like, worked out a bunch? I'm not really sure. But then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. And he said, no, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Please, we're innocent. And they're just going back and forth. And eventually Joseph tells them, just as I have told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. And if you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. And first of all, 
is that a trauma response or what? You know what I mean? Like, Joseph sees his brothers, and these are the ones who betrayed him. These are the ones who sold him into slavery that completely changed his life. And he immediately puts all his guards up, which, like, I would do the same. Like, who, no one can blame him, right? And yet, these are the same people that also were cut from the same cloth and yet never supported his life or his dreams. And so Joseph has every reason to resent them. He has every reason to have this dramatic response, to test his brothers actually for several months, up to maybe even years, to see if they had truly repented. And the story goes on, and the test runs its course. It's a back and forth from saying, you are spies, you are not actually supposed to be here. And eventually the test runs its course, and Joseph eventually can let his guard down. He eventually makes himself known and shows his identity. So we see this in Genesis 45, verses 1 to 5. And it says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph, and he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And that is absolutely beautiful. And it continues, as Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt to live with him and care for him. But can you see the difference in how he responded to his brothers the first time he saw them? With this feeling and this anger of, you are spies and I'm testing you. And in fact, like, of course he would be incredibly sus. Like, again, we said we can't blame him, right? He has every power to throw him into jail for three days. But eventually... In this interaction we see, he tells them, come close to me. He throws his arms around them. He weeps and he kisses them. That's a huge change of heart. And what happens here, right? I believe that one solution to trauma is connection. When connection happens, you have to tell yourself a different narrative. You have to have the capacity to tell yourself something that maybe you've never thought of before. Maybe it's something like, I am actually more than what I believe my family thought me as. And it's something that's incredibly freeing and healing. Joseph decides to partner with God to be a blessing. His generational trauma is broken by investing heavily into the relationships that he has and living and breathing into that trust. Joseph has broken the cycle of lying and of family estrangement and eventually his own father dies and he never takes any type of revenge, even though he has every power to. Joseph has a reason to kill his brothers for actually no reason if he wanted to. And the brothers know this, so they're worried that this is all a facade, that he's just doing this to please his father. And so in Genesis 50, we see this ultimatum, the end of Genesis. Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Which, honestly, that's probably what he should have done. 
I'm just kidding. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God, your father. When their message came to them, came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. It's kind of crazy to see this response because if you remember in Joseph's dreams, his brothers have now bowed down to him, if you count in the Bible, at least three times at this point. And he is literally seeing God's promises happening. And Joseph chooses in this moment to not use revenge, to not continue the generational traumas of lying, of breaking families, of estrangement. He chooses to forgive and reconcile. And I'm not trying to say that this is your story. This might not be your story, but there's a whole nother sermon I could preach on reconciliation and forgiveness. But this was Joseph's story. Joseph made a choice, and it's the same choice that we can make every day. Is God safe? Is God good? Can God be trusted? And we see the development and history of Joseph's relationship with God over time, where at first, Maybe he carried a lot of that weight of thinking, I am better than God, or maybe I am equal to God, to this point of saying, God, I am yours, and your will is mine. Eventually, his whole life is structured around following God. In moments of critical decision, he continuously chooses God's decision every time. In the same way, there are daily choices that we can center in our own walks with God. And in doing so, we can become instruments of blessings to those around us. And I invite the band to come back up. And as they do, I want to encourage you with this. Know that your family of origin or your traumas do not define you or determine your future. Only God does. Joseph knew these patterns of his family, and he also knew of his own integrity and faithfulness in God as well. So, what does that look like for you? I've been putting dishes in the dishwasher now without washing them, and it's pretty uh, empowering. But it took me years to get to this point. And my point is, is that you also have the power to do it. You have the power of self-awareness. You have the power to change your narrative. And I don't know what it looks like for you or your family and your past. Maybe it's someone who really hurt you. Maybe it's a cycle of behavior that you keep doing over and over again. It's really hard and you want to stop. Or perhaps it's something that is just between you and God. And for this, I want you to know that the same power that Joseph used is within, you have that same power within you today. My ask for you is this, talk to someone. If God created time and space, he can work outside the space and time continuum. He can speak through Joseph's story. He can speak to you in any place, in any time, any location, and through any person. Maybe it's a therapist's office. Maybe it's your best friend's couch. Or maybe it's by doing a genogram and figuring out your family's history and past. 
I read a book about every year or two called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro, and it teaches us that it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And I want to put a slide up right now. And Celeste, do you mind passing me that piece of paper right there? There's a workbook as well. And this workbook um, has a genogram worksheet, and you can also scan the QR code. And it gives you this amazing little genogram. And you can write out and understand your family's story on here. I've printed 100 out, actually. They're going to be out in the courtyard for you for Afterglow. You're going to be like, hey, how's it going? You're like, I'm going to be doing my family's history on trauma. It's going to be great. We'll all get close with each other. Um, but this is, these are the books that I recommend you reading um, if this is something that you feel like has really spoken to you. And another great book that I started is called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And he started Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon. John Mark says that the problem isn't just what we've been told as lies, but it's that we end up living those lies. And it's a really great book to teach you how to change your narrative. And lastly, I want to encourage you to create a community around you that has of safety and of encouragement. I know that we each need trusted people that we can talk to and grow together and laugh together. And ultimately, that's why we have life groups here at Praxis. And that's why we meet here every week, that we can grow in relationships and in community. Generational trauma and cycles are not easy to break or change, but you have the power to hold self-awareness, to hold and change your narrative, and to make connections. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the promises that you have kept. I pray that you have spoken to each person here. And I don't know what is going on in each person's lives, but Lord, you do. You know the families represented. You know their stories, their histories, their past, their insecurities and their vulnerabilities. And God, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will dwell within them, within their hearts and their minds and their souls. I pray that the same power that guided Joseph is within us and will continue to guide us throughout the journey that we have to grow closer to you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for watching over us and washing us with your perfect love and forgiveness. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, thank you so much for joining us for the Night Church podcast. We really are excited for where we're going, and you can help us in that mission. There's a few things that you can do. Number one is just stay connected. So if you want to follow up what's going on in the young adult ministry here at Loma Linda University Church, follow us on Instagram at Praxis Ministry. And then the other way to really build from this is to financially contribute. Your donations make such a big impact. And so if you go to lluc.org slash give, you can connect with Praxis Ministry there on a one-time gift or a reoccurring commitment. It makes such a difference. Well, we love you, care for you, and may God bless you richly as you take theory and make it into practice.